Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins. I'm here with my colleague Mark Pringle. Hey, Barney. And we are going to be talking a little further down the line about the late Dr. John. We have an audio clip from 1994. We're going to talk about Mac Rebenach. We're going to be talking a little bit about the Rolling Thunder review film that debuted on Netflix last night. We're going to be talking about the late Andy Gill, who we lost earlier this week, a writer who's been on board for for many years with Rocks Back Pages. Mostly we're going to be talking about and with our very special guest, Bernard or Bernard Fowler. Welcome. Thank you. (laughs) Welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Good to see you guys. Well, it's an honor to have you here. and We're really looking forward to speaking with you about your career and all aspects of your career. And I guess sort of more than anything else about the album that you released very recently. Just tell us in your own words a little bit about Inside Out. Well, as you just said, it's called Inside Out. And people know me as a vocalist, but this record is a spoken word record. Yeah. Basically, it's Rolling Stone songs done in spoken word. Yes. Yeah. I tried to pick a lot of songs that most people weren't familiar with. I didn't go for the hits. That's it. Well, I mean, first of all, to say that Barney and I loved it. I mean, Barney put it on yesterday in the office, first time I heard it. I said, which last Perch album is that? But then it kind of extends out into all kinds of areas of funk. If you're deaf to it, blind to it, it's like a thunderclap. Feel the prickles running up and down your back. Why so divine the pain of love? You're channeling a bit of lightning rod, hustlers convention going on there. You got a good <laughs> he's, he's, got, you know, a he's good got his ear. reference points. You um, got a good ear. Well, we, we love that stuff. Yeah. So, you know, mm-hmm. you know we, we go way back with that, that sort of thing. So, yeah, we were knocked out. It's we, a Bob? really interesting oh, reimagining. It means the world to me. I'm, I'm, that means the world to me. When I thought about doing the record, you know, I said, you know, People are going to really like it or they're going to hate it, you know, <laughs> especially people that know me, you know. As from, a singer, yeah. yeah. It's just really interesting. I mean, there's some great playing, but it's n- not about the playing, you know. I mean, I mm. hear, like, the trumpet guy, the guy channeling Miles Davis, sort of electric period Miles Davis. In, well, what's this, what's that's this? Keon Harrell. Keon Harrell did... Oh, funny you should say Miles Davis, because Keon Harrell... In the uh, Don Cheadle movie, uh, yeah, the yeah. Don Cheadle movie, all oh, the trumpet Miles, that's yeah. you don't hear that's Miles is Keon. Aha! Mm-hmm. Well, he's he's got it down. I mean, oh, yeah. it's, it's great. And he just happens to be from St. Louis, the hometown of Miles Davis. Indeed, fantastic stuff. I mean, given that you are here in London at the moment, Bernard, rehearsing mm-hmm. with the Stones for their forthcoming tour, mm-hmm. I have to ask you, what do they think of it? it's such an interesting approach to the Rolling Stones you know what Barney I'm going to be honest with you I wish I knew (laughs) it's like that is it I wish I knew Well, well I will say that I think a writer for Rolling Stone magazine did say that he spoke to Keith and asked Keith about it Mm mm-hmm and Keith said he loved it. That, it, it wouldn't surprise me. Because, yeah. again, Keith would know where you're coming from and all this stuff. Yeah. I mean, he's a, got huge ears. He listens to all this stuff. He said he loved it. And when I first started recording it, I, I ran in, I saw Keith in New York in a studio, and 
He said, what have you been up to? I said, well, let me play you just a little taste. It was very rough at the time, and I played it for him, and he looked at me and said, damn, Fowler, you went deep. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Anyway, it's just fantastic. Can we take you right back yeah. um, to the Paradise Garage, to Larry Levan, Peach Boys? That's bad. Well, even maybe before that, Mike, I mean, just because okay. this, this is such a New York album, the approach, the influences, mm. the last part's the salsa, and Lenny Castro playing it. Mm-hmm. All this stuff is really interesting. So you are pure New York City, aren't you? I mean, Born you, and raised. Yeah. I am not a transplant. I didn't come from someplace else. <laughs> I am born and raised in New York City, and I grew up right underneath the 59th Street Bridge. Wow. Wow. So New York City yeah. was my playground as a yeah. kid. I used to walk that bridge or ride my bike over that bridge to go to Central Park and mess around. Yeah. Fantastic. So, yeah, I am a native New Yorker. Yeah, yeah. So you were surrounded by the sound of that part of the city. That sound is in that record. Right. That, that's my feeling. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Um, in the there record. is a piece called Must Be Hell. And if you listen to that piece, it fades in with Kunga. And when I was growing up, there was a park, you know, on the side of the projects next to the bridge. And every day, yeah. cats were in that park playing Kunga and playing that beat. We got trouble, that's for sure. We got millions unemployed. Right. Were they Latino? Were they? Uh, They're both black and Latino. Black and Latino. You know, right. when when I was growing up, black and Latino. You know, we were pretty much all one one people. When I was growing up, blacks and Latinos both danced salsa. They used to go to the cheetah. You know. And there was a Jewish cat in there dancing with him, Bill Graham. Right. I had a talk with right. Bill Graham about that. He was a heavy salsa Oh, he was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. oh, that's why he loved Santana so much, because mm-hmm. it's the first time he had a exactly. rock band exactly. and on that sort of mm-hmm. stuff. So, extraordinary background. How did you get involved with Larry Levan? Larry Levan. God bless him. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah. Larry Levan, okay. The very first band I was in mm-hmm. was called The Total Eclipse. We were signed to Brunswick Records. Mm-hmm. Oh. I think we were the last band ever signed to Brunswick <laughs> because very soon after that, the label was no more. Right. Okay, so I was in this band. People were leaving the band. The drummer left the band. Mm-hmm. You know, I was leaving the band. The dr- I, drummer called me one day and said, hey, I want you to meet some people. We met... I went and met these people. Anyway, we started the Peach Boys. Mm-hmm. Peach Boys were called something else. We were called Snatch. We actually <laughs> did a record under that name, yeah, and yeah. we did a cover of another Brick in the Wall. <laughs> a dance version that I actually heard not long ago. Yeah. I was doing a corporate date, and I'm leaving, and I hear this record playing. I'm like, I know that record. Where did they get that from? And then I, I heard myself singing, and I ran up to the guy. I'm like, where did you get that from? I hadn't heard it in years. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, you know, we're shopping, and Snatch was no longer. We turned into the Peach Boys, and we're doing showcases in there. Now, when I was in this first band mm-hmm. called Total Eclipse, the guitar player said to me one day, he said, hey, man, 
on the weekend, I want to take you someplace that you're going to dig it, Bernard. He mm -hmm. said, you'll get it. He took me to a place called Reed Street. And I remember walking in, aluminum foil on the walls, you know, black lights. And the DJ was spinning these records and people were going crazy. One record that really stuck with me that he was spinning because it was brand new at the time was Love Hangover. Right. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I remember talking about this for a long time. So anyway, again, moving forward, Peach Boys. So we're trying to get a deal. We're trying to get something happen. And somebody said, you know, we should try it. We should go down to the Paradise Garage. And, you know, all of Larry's mixes are being played on the radio. Yeah. Larry is, is doing all the remixes. Mm -hmm. He's mixing for labels. Mm -hmm. Maybe we could get him involved. So we started hanging out at the Paradise Garage. Right. We met Larry. We became really close. We recorded this song that brought us all together in a working place, and that was Don't Make Me Wait. Yeah, yeah. Larry Levin mixed the record. Larry Levin basically became part of the band. Yeah, yeah. Larry Levin was not only the first celebrity DJ, yeah, yeah. but the first DJ to be part of a band. Yes. It right. was the first for yeah, yeah. a lot of things at that Did time. You ever go to and it was the first a cappella. Yeah. yeah. Did you ever go to the loft or any of the Oh, yes. Yeah. I went to the loft, Better Days. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All those. Because, I mean, now in this country, there's a great deal of interest in that, like from the first loft party in 71 mm -hmm. through to, let's say, the closing of the Paradise Garage and mm -hmm. all that. There's mm -hmm. a lot of interest in that sort so of stuff. So I've heard. Yeah. And you know what? One of the, one of the last times I actually saw Larry... Mm -hmm was here in London. Was it? Yeah, I was here, I was living here, and I was doing Tackhead. Right, mm. yeah, right. And Larry was here doing ministry. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's just a great loss, you know. Great loss, yeah, yeah. great loss. One of the pieces that we've included in our Bernard Fowler special feature, <laughs> which is going to be on the homepage, is a piece about the Peach Boys from 1983. And it mentions... A number of interesting things. It mentions Tanner Gardner's Heartbeat, which I happened to be in New York when that record was exploding, and I still have the 12... I think you've got my 12-inch uh, <laughs> West End records uh, of Heartbeat, and it was such a radical record. I'm, and the, the name Larry Levan really stuck in my mind, because it was so slow, mm -hmm. and people were like, how can you put out a record, a mix this slow? Yes, and, but it was a very yes, influential... Yes, yes track wasn't very it? and you know what i have to say this about larry that i absolutely love that i think i'm gonna say it all djs should take this he played the songs at the proper tempo <laughs> <laughs> right. absolutely yeah. absolutely no matter what yeah, yeah. the song was yeah. no matter how he was mixing it mm -hmm. he played it at the proper tempo yeah you never heard a heartbeat, you know, yeah. 10 Spare dBs up. No. Up. Yeah. no. Uh, did you have any dealings with Arthur Russell? Did he, did he cross your path at all? Mm -hmm. Arthur Russell. He, was, uh, the, he did stuff with Larry, but he was like an art rock guy. And the reason why I ask is because the other thing that you went on to do is you ended up working with people like Material, James Bloodham. There's a bit of you which really likes, like, the art, the artier end of things. Yeah. Is that fair, fair was, to say? I was... Um, I was an odd cat growing mm -hmm. up. I grew up in Queensbridge Projects. Right. Predominantly black and Puerto Rican mm -hmm. neighborhood. 
but I always felt like I'm I was supposed to be at Woodstock. <laughs> I grew up listening to radio. The radio stations that I listened to were WW. It started out with WWRL. Mm-hmm. Frankie Crocker, absolutely the Chief Crocker. Yes, <laughs> and then it went from which was AM radio, and then FM became the thing. Mm-hmm. Frankie Crocker mm-hmm. went to WBLS radio, right. which is he was the one. He used to go to Paradise That's Garage. Right. Yeah, I see the photograph of him, him in the booth. That's right. Yeah. And Larry would give him. He would take mixes from Larry and yeah. and, and and play them on the air. Fantastic. And so, like I was saying, I grew up listening to WWRL most of the day and then at night the Symphony Sid show <laughs> right okay well you had good radio in the city you know, back <laughs> in those days good, good radio <laughs> good radio and yeah. you know and like I said because I was such an odd kid I loved rock rock and roll then too you know mm-hmm. my my brother and you know my dad used to they used to crack at watching me you know imitate Chuck Berry <laughs> you know and and like I mean I mean you know rock and roll wasn't something that was played in my neighborhood but I I had a love for sure, it. Sure, I mean what was it your dad's your second record he ever bought you as a Stones record is that the right? The first record, my, the first album my dad came home and mm-hmm. actually gave to me was a Stones record. Don't ask me why. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think my dad wasn't around enough to know that I had this secret love for rock and roll. He had right. no idea. He came home with this album. That's cool. And you still don't really know why. I, I don't know why. Ah. I don't think he knew why. I think he might have been drunk, saw it somewhere, and just grabbed it and said, Here, Bernard. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe he had a vision of your future. I know. <laughs> that's, what, that's what we said. That was the conclusion we came to. He time traveled. Well, you know what? That could very well be because he didn't have a vision of anything else I was doing. He was like, a, he was pissed most of the time. Yeah. Uh, uh. If that was the beginning of, of a quite an eclectic mm. approach to music then it did sort of augur well for your future because you had fingers in all sorts of pies didn't you in the kind of 80s and 90s it's such an interesting cv mm. even before you get to the stones and james blood armor you james blood armor big hero of mine mm-hmm. you know i mean i love that stuff and doug know. wimbish i mean all these really yeah. interesting people i was always with. looking for something different to yeah. do you yeah, know yeah. the peach boys were they were different than any other band, you know, happening at that time, mm-hmm. the Peach Boys yeah. were a different mm-hmm. animal. Mm-hmm. Totally different. Mm-hmm. Totally yeah, yeah. different, you know. And I remember when we were putting that band together, you know, it was important that we had a rock guitar. Yes. Yeah. And at, at that time, a lot of dance music, mm-hmm. they weren't using, That's you know, right. a rock guitar. And I remember there was a Led Zeppelin record that I was listening to a lot of <laughs> at that time. Mm-hmm. Was it one, two, three, four, or five? <laughs> <laughs> it, had a, it had a brown paper cover. Oh, uh, that would have been the last one, In Through the Outdoor. Oh, I need your love, but...
I mean, it was in a brown paper. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah, the very yeah, last yeah, yeah. I remember being up in the loft okay. on 30th Street, which we all, which where we all lived. Right. And, you know, listening to that record a lot. So interesting. Just bought back a minute. And then Sly and Robbie. You Sly and Robbie. Robbie Boops. You're all over. Yeah. All over the yes. the 80s. Well, just, yeah. The stuff we were listening to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You yeah. know, yeah. we didn't even know that you were on half. I mean, Barbie Hancock. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah all these wow. records that we listened. I mean, the Public Image album, the generic album. Mm -hmm. You know this. Sort of secret presence oh, you know throughout what? all of this. I've got to say this. I've got to say this because something happened at rehearsal yesterday. Ronnie Wood's guitar tech. Yeah. She knew that I had sang and wrote some song with Alice Cooper. And yes. uh, we were talking about this record. And she said something about, you know, oh, there's a great uh, song on there with Alice doing uh, singing with Ozzy Osbourne. And she, <laughs> I know and, what's coming. And she went and she went to Wikipedia and she's and I, I just curious. I looked at it and it said Ozzy Osbourne. And I said, "Listen, let me tell you something. That's BS. That is not Ozzy Osbourne singing that duet with Alice Cooper. It's me. That's they funny. got it wrong. Uh, they got it uh, wrong. It's not." Ozzy Osbourne and Alice Cooper. It's Alice Cooper and Bernard Fowler. And how that happened was, this is the album Along Came a Spider. Alice wanted to do this duet with Ozzy. Mm -hmm. Sharon gave him a problem. <laughs> Sharon gave him a problem. So we were in the studio and he's really upset by this. And I'm sitting there and I said, Alice, I'll do it for you. And he says, oh, Bernard, thank you, but... I really want Ozzy. I said, well, just let, let me give it a go. I went to the bathroom. I put tissue in my nose. <laughs> and I was, working with, I was working with a really great producer by the name of Danny Saber. I said, Danny, roll tape. And I sang the song from top to bottom. And Alice looked at me and said, shit, how did you do that? <laughs> how did you do that? And I didn't know he was going to keep it. But he kept it. Uh, and every, everyone thought it was Ozzy. It's not Ozzy. That's brilliant. That's, but that's they, didn't, they didn't credit it as Ozzy on the album. I'm not sure they? how they credited it. on Wikipedia, they did. On Wikipedia, they did. I didn't check the album to see. So you can do Ozzy. Yeah. In addition to all your other skills, you can <laughs> Well, I did Lemmy on a Gasmatron. I you did do Lemmy, you're absolutely vocals. right. But it's hard to sing that bad. <laughs> <laughs> That's a skill. I mean, look, we love Lemmy. You love Lemmy, but it's hard to sing that bad. How do you move into the Stones orbit? How did that sort of come about? How that happened, okay. It starts with Bill Laswell, doesn't it? As you know, I was doing a lot of stuff with Bill. Great, the, uh, great man. Great man. Great man. Mm -hmm. I was singing for Herbie Hancock at the time. Yeah. We were on tour. Rocket was blowing up. Mm -hmm. I had a 10-day break from the tour. I go home. Telephone rings. Bill Laswell. Hey, Bernard. Hey, Bill, how you doing? Good, man, what you doing? I said, I just walked in the house, Bill. <laughs> cool, go to the airport, man. I said, Bill, you don't understand. <laughs> I just walked into the house. <laughs> Okay, go back to the airport, man. There's a ticket there for you. Click. I called a taxi, grabbed my suitcase, went to the airport, said to ask the lady, um, do you have a ticket for me? What's your name? Where are you going? I said, I don't know. She said, let's see, I gave you the passport. She said, oh, you got a first class ticket to London. Okay. 
I don't know why I'm going to London. I arrive in London. Bill picks me up. I walk outside, and you know there's old big black Bentleys. Mm-hmm. Bill's in a Bentley. Bill's in Bill Lazzle of all people. Yeah. <laughs> kind of scared me. I'm thinking, what the hell is Bill doing? You know, Bill was a little nuts back then. Yeah, yeah. So we get in. We're driving through London. We stop. We pick up a journalist. We do an interview, and we continue on. And we're talking music. And just in conversation, he said, hey, man, do you like the Stones? I said, yeah, I love the Stones, man. This is the first record my dad ever bought for me. And we continued to talk. We pull up to the house in Swiss Cottage. Mm-hmm. Go into the house. Big black dude answers the door. Hi, Bill. Hey, man. He said, he's in there. Who is he? <laughs> <laughs> so Bill walks in, and I walk in behind him, and there's a guy on the floor with a guitar. I could only see the back with the guitar sticking out. Bill walks around to him and says, Hey, man, this is the guy I've been telling you about. This is Bernard Fowler. And he turned around, and it was Jagger. And Bill leaves the room, and I'm standing there. <laughs> <laughs> Some introduction. <laughs> you had no idea. What I had doing. no idea. That's amazing. Why I was in London, and amazing. that was that's how I, I had met Mick at the Paradise Garage. Right. Okay. Yeah, I, I know he. That um, makes sense. Yeah, I had yeah. met him there, but he would not have remembered that. Sure. Sure. You know. Sure. Well, he doesn't remember anything, does he? <laughs> <laughs> or he remembers too much. <laughs> So mm-hmm. that's 1985, and that, that's She's the Boss. That's Jagger's first solo album. Yes. Right. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And then after that, I had joined Tackhead. Yeah. yeah. And I was here in London. Right. And we, Tackhead was here. Mm-hmm. Yes, it was home. And I mm-hmm. was here for a while, and I get a call. Somebody says, Bernard, Mick Jagger's looking for you. I said, oh, well, here's a number. You should call him, because he's been calling around. So I called I call and said, hello, hello, hey, Mick. It's Bernard Fowler. Bernard... I've been calling you, calling you. Where are you? I said, I'm in London. He said, you're in London. I said, yeah. He said, how long have you been here? I've been here like a year or something. I've been here a long time. <laughs> then he says, well, you know, the Stones are making a, a new record after like eight or nine years. And it, I appreciate if you could come by and give me a hand on some stuff. And I went to the studio and one by one, as we're working on the stuff, one by one, they came in and that was for Steve Wilson. Right, right. I've been hanging around ever since. 30 years. Mm. So we, wow. we, we have, an, uh, again, another part of the Bernard Fowler feature is an interview that you did in 1998, and you tell some great stories. And one of the things that I really loved most was that you walked into the middle of this, the kind of end of this real, like, fallout between Mick and Keith and oh you. And there's this God. great story about Keith, originally, he, he's it's like this guy Bernard is mixed guy and I'm not going to like him I've decided I'm not I've already <laughs> taken it against him so tell us about that <laughs> you would bring that up <laughs> okay so <laughs> that day when you know I'm in the studio with Mick you know working on some stuff mm-hmm. for this record Mick says okay we have the ideas be Let's go and do it. So they're all there. I said, okay, let's do it. So I, I start doing a part, and then uh, something said, you know, this ain't right. I said, 
stop the tape. Mick said, what's wrong? It's going great. It's going great. I said, you know what, Mick? I said, listen, I'm happy to do this. I said, but if I do this, it's going to sound like me. Mm-hmm. Maybe you or maybe some of the guys want to come in and sing with me. Mm-hmm. It gets quiet. Okay, hold on, Bernard. Ronnie and Keith come in. I show them parts. Give them parts. We sing. We go back in to listen to playback. Mm-hmm. Standing and listening to playback, I feel this heat. <laughs> and I look, and Keith is looking at me like this. <laughs> That's scary. <laughs> with, those, with those eyes. You know those eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. And I looked at him, I'm like, oh shit. And I'm trying to ignore him. I look again, he's still looking at me. <laughs> And I'm thinking, oh, hell, here we go. <laughs> I got to say something to him. So I looked at him. I said, yo, man, something wrong? No, nothing's wrong. I said, you sure you keep, you keep why are you staring at me, man? Why you keep staring at me? I didn't want to like you. I said, you didn't want to like me. I didn't want to like you. <laughs> And I'm like, why, man? I said, I, I said, why you the one like me? I said, I'm cool. <laughs> he said, because I thought you were one of mixed boys. Yeah. 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 I said, yo, man, I'm, I said, I'm cool. He said, I know you're cool. <laughs> I know you're cool. I, know you're cool. <laughs> I spoke to Steve Jordan and he told right. me about it. Ah, right, right. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's yeah. cool. That's First cool. words he ever spoke to me. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's a start. <laughs> And, I mean, you've become so identified with the Stones sound. I mean, many of the, the tracks I love... I mean, I really liked Steel Wheels. I thought it was a real return to form. And when I first heard, like, Slipping Away, you're all over that. What a, I mean, that to me was like, oh, my God, they can still write great songs. Mm. And almost he sigh. And you're... That vocal blend, and particularly your voice, has become such a I'm such an so important glad. part of the story. I'm so glad to hear you say that because it's funny. It's not often that you have the privilege of being in their space when they're writing. Mm-hmm. And when they were writing that stuff, I was there. Right. When Keith was writing, you know, that stuff, I was there. Mm-hmm. And as he's writing, I'm on a microphone, just singing ideas, singing ideas, but right. it still wasn't complete. So when it sure. did get completed, we were in L.A. doing it. Mm-hmm. Don Wells was producing it. And I remember we we're in the studio. And, well, one of those songs, How Can I Stop, <laughs> in particular. Yeah. It's time to do the background vocals. It's taking hours. It's taking hours. Mm-hmm. And I remember saying, I might have said to Don, was, hey, man, Don, I can do that. No, no, you know, just cut me off. And I'm like, okay, let it go on for hours and hours and hours. And then I think everybody got tired. Mm-hmm. And I said, let me do this. <laughs> let me do this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Gave everybody the parts. Boom. It was done. I had already written the background parts when Keith was writing the song. Yeah, right. yeah, sure, yeah, sure. yeah. You know, and same thing with you know slipping away. You yeah. know, yeah. So, yeah, I'm really glad. You, That's great. You know, I mean, That's some great. of those really soulful ballads that mm. 
Keith has written yeah. over the years. Oh, also the other thing. So, they're just so great. To be blunt. Mm-hmm. They are great songs. Oh, beautiful, beautiful but, but songs. But also, to be blunt, it really improved their live vocal sound. I mean, yes. I've listened to that 1971 releases, the Sticky Fingers reaster from the tour of England, Leeds, and, and dear old Keith, his backing vocals, they're sort of not even in the same postcode as what he's meant to be. Which is pretty yeah. sure is why they didn't release that, that stuff at the time. It sounds great now, you know. It's just yeah, really, yeah. But, and yet, I, lo- I love Keith's voice. <laughs> oh, I love his voice. I, I really yeah. do love his ball- it. Yeah. His, 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 he's got a way with a balance. With you, with you behind him, it just works <laughs> really well. A, he, is, he is a balladeer. Yeah. He's really, yeah. isn't he? He is he a writes, balladeer. He writes beautiful He's ballads. a softie yeah. in yeah. there. Yes. <laughs> he's, he's a deep feeling. Oh, yes. He is. As he would say. Yes, he is. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, I suppose we're going to have to start moving on because the, you know it's been just. We could talk about your career for forever. the rest the, for the rest of the day. <laughs> well, I just and, want and, to say before we move on that yes. my last record, Deborah, was an incredible record that a lot of people missed. And if they ever get a chance to hear it or see it, have a listen. And the new one, Inside Out. Inside so Out. There's, there's, uh, there's tons of great yeah. solo burning stuff. When does this tour that you're now rehearsing, when does uh, that start? The last day rehearsal is today. Yes. We'll head out tomorrow and the next day for Chicago. It's right. going to be in Chicago. I think the first the show first is show. on the 21st or 22nd. Uh-huh. I would have seen you there at Soldier Field mm-hmm. in about 97... Uh-huh. And, and, and it was the first time I'd seen the Stones for a while. What were you doing just, in Chicago? Uh, well, I was writing a, a mojo piece oh, okay. on Keith. Okay. I interviewed Keith uh-huh. in Toronto. I mean, you would have been there. Uh-huh. You'd probably been there at the Horseshoe Tavern for the warm-up mm-hmm, gig. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I remember thinking, wow. I mean, the Soldierfield gig was like, oh, I, I didn't know they could still be this good. Mm-hmm. And they, everything was just so much tighter and mm. funkier more polished and With last thing on this it's getting better still yeah mm. you saw him yeah. at the park a couple of years ago and he said it was Hyde really park about three or four uh-huh. years ago uh-huh. yeah uh-huh. and he said yeah. it was really good uh, that yeah, was I mean, a there were good great show. moments mm. like when mick taylor came on and show. did um, yes. midnight rambler midnight rambler yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. that was spectacular yeah, that was spectacular Talking of spectacular, just briefly going to mention, it just came on Netflix mm. yesterday, the, the Bob Dylan, the Martin Scorsese film of Bob Dylan's Rolling Thunder. There is some spectacular live footage in that. Mick Gold has written a really, really great piece about this film. It's three hours long. I think I must have, I had time to see about two thirds of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't have to be a Dylan obsessive to appreciate this film. There's so many interesting things in it. There's like Joni Mitchell playing Coyote at Gordon Lightfoot's house in Toronto with Dylan and Roger McGuinn. And Lightfoot oh, oh. sitting in the back. I mean, it's just extraordinary. Wow. And there's, there's stuff with Alan Ginsberg. And there is the most extraordinary... I mean, some of the live stuff is so powerful. The version of The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll with Mick Ronson playing this extraordinary this guitar solo behind him. It just brings goosebumps wow. to you. I won't say any more than that. Read Mick's piece. See the film. I, you know, as I say, you don't have to be a Dylan worshipper. Sure. But it really is. A, it, 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 it's got so... So much going on in it. So that's also free on Rock's Back Pages this week. Here comes the story of the hurricane. The man you thought 
we will mention the loss of Andy Gill, who was a writer on NME for many years and then became the chief pop critic at The Independent. Very sadly, Andy died last weekend. And just briefly, I mean, he was... He was like the polar opposite of Nick Kent. Yeah. Okay, so he was—he looked like a prop forward rather than a... <laughs> yeah. Uh, he didn't really look like a rock critic. He was from Sheffield, and he wrote about a lot of the interesting stuff that was coming out of cities like Sheffield in the late 70s and in the early 80s. So Andy wrote a lot about Cabaret Voltaire. Mm-hmm. So we have three pieces by Andy, just to pay tribute. One is a Cabaret Voltaire piece from 78. He often got mistaken for Andy Gill of the Gang of Four. So one of the pieces... <laughs> he's, he's, yeah, I've called, it, I've called it the feature Gang of Two. So you've got a picture of Andy Gill of Gang of Four and Andy Gill, the writer. So he wrote a lot about the Gang of Four. And then the third piece is about Frank Zappa. So when Andy wrote a lot for Q, 1989, the year you started mm-hmm. with the Stones... Andy flies to LA to interview Frank Zappa, and that's a really interesting retrospective piece on Frank's whole career. So, you know, if you're a Zappa fan, definitely worth reading. And I know Andy, we're all going to miss Andy. Everybody, everybody loved Andy. He was an adorable guy and a great writer. And so this is RBP saying farewell to, you know, we've got 370 pieces by Andy on Rockstar Pages. You know, we'll miss him. And, um, we're now, I'm really going to hand over to you, Mark, to tell us about... The audio interview with Dr. John. Fascinating, kind of quite long, well over an hour. But no, have you had dealings with Dr. John over the years? You know, it's funny, I've met him maybe three, four times. Two of the times was in Narita Airport in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, uh-huh. there you go. A very interesting interview, Andy Schwartz. He looks with no nostalgia whatsoever back at his earliest days as a kid in New Orleans, starting to play session, first of all as a guitar player. And he talked about the fact that they were just ripped off ruthlessly. Mm. You know, he never got any copyrights on the songs he wrote. He mm. never saw any royalties. This is um, Ace Records. What's his name? Johnny Vincent. Johnny Vincent, Ace Records. Put him on salary as a session player. But if he earned more than his salary in session fees in that week, he wouldn't get a salary. I mean, he was just screwed. Oh, my God. Also, he doesn't actually say it in this interview, but he was already starting to use her at that point mm-hmm. in his team. So uh, are we going to hear a clip on these well, things? Well, yes, we will, we will indeed. In fact, let's play the clip now. This is him talking about just exactly this, the rip-off. I'd love to hear this. If I buy these things on reissue, do you see a dime? Nah. Okay. I never Unless had you had a dime the publishing. Up front. Uh, no, even, not even I never had publishing or nothing in those days. And usually, I'd say eighty to ninety percent of songs I wrote from nineteen fifty-five on. There's usually writers' names that never even heard the song. A lot of them were disc jockeys like Horace Allen, John Richburg. Guys that were just disc jockeys that their names were put. Plus guys like Johnny Vincent put their name on and he owned the record company. Joe Rafina. There were other guys that's names on songs I wrote from back then. I, if I would get paid, I'd get paid a fourth or a fifth of what I wrote by myself. So, but I don't get paid anyway, so it doesn't make much difference. You know, I don't get any... I mean, it, 
Johnny Richie and Joraphina both used to pay me. Uh, uh, I was, you know, a teenager working for him, and, and during the years, something really strange was happening that in the fact that they had a hustle. They knew that I think I got hired just because they liked uh, to write songs. I don't mind auditioning people, all that stuff. So they figured, well, we're going to really hustle this kid. If I got paid more on sessions in any one week than what my salary was, I didn't get paid my salary. I mean, it was like... You had a ceiling on your earnings. Well, that so word was never used, but uh, it was very like uh, the IRS going and sharing your wages or something. But there was all these side hustles that we never made any money doing anything. I've been in the right place, but it must have been the wrong time. I done said the right thing, but it must have used the wrong line. Yeah, that, that's that, that, a, an old familiar oh, tale. It's, isn't an, it's, it? a, you know, it's an old familiar tale. He also talks about how. Jim Garrison destroyed the city by closing all the clubs. He's mm. the famous attorney general there. Mm. Also, how the musicians' union mm -hmm. was so reactionary, they didn't believe that you should be allowed to overdub because they felt that an overdub was taking another musician's thing, right? <laughs> and he's, Everything he's, was one yeah. track. He, he, he says, in fact, he says in the interview, Atlantic were only 16 track. That's probably not true, but certainly Atlantic were eight track, and there was still only one track yep. studios in New Orleans. Right, yeah. So he's, he's not nostalgic about that. Now, the implication, because uh, I listened to it last night, was that if New Orleans hadn't been so reactionary and luddite yeah. about it, mm -hmm. they could have... Been another Memphis. Well, they, or, Mem Memphis or, or, or Nashville. Yeah. Or right. Nashville. Sure. And they got left behind yeah. because they were so sure. luddite about yeah. the, re the yeah. recording innovations. Uh, you know? he, he talks about his addiction and getting clean, helped by Doc Pomus, which is very interesting detail. And then he talks about like modern recording stuff being sampled by Beck. I mean, he got paid for that. That's <laughs> as good of money as he got from anywhere. And his very early involvement with hip-hop in New York, he did a track with Arthur Baker just mm -hmm. after Arthur Baker had been done. Overlaps with your world there, yeah, for, yeah, sure. for sure. Which surprised me. I, I had no for idea sure. about that. Well, he did live in, he lived in New York for most, probably lived there longer than he lived anywhere else. Well, He'd already been, at this point, living in New York for about 13, 14 yes, years. Or so. right. Yeah. yeah. He, Moved from California, where of right. course he was sort of part of the whole session. The wrecking crew. The wrecking crew. Yeah, yeah. Guys. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So, we, uh, we, we love Dr. John. Well, I mean, you know, yeah, so we'd only just literally recorded the podcast last week, hadn't we, yeah. when when we heard that, that, that Mac had passed. Yeah. I mean, I was, we were both, I saw him seven, eight times when he came to London over the years. Never bad, sometimes let down by less than brilliant English pickup backing bands, but mm. but everyone was. But and I saw him when he did that that season at Ronnie Scott's when he had his own band and a horn section, including people like Ronnie Cuba and people like that. And that was just that was great, you know. Mm. So I got into a row with one of the expense account diners. That's probably Ronnie's. There's always, there's always, <laughs> there's always a table to get in a row with. There's, there's always a table full of people just laughing, talking, and drinking, oh, and ignoring yes, the band. Always. You yes. know. Uh, and of course, you know, I didn't uh, pay twenty yeah, quid to listen to your fucking mm, conversation. Mm, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and Matt Mac, of course had, you know, connections with the Stones. He played on... He's on XL on Main, Main right. Street, of course. Mm -hmm. He plays, I think, on, on Shine a Light. Yeah, and, right. um, he's, you know, to me, he's in the same musical world as the Stones. It's, Absolutely. It's just... It's so funky yeah. and, and raw and... 
sexy. Yeah. It's just yeah. sexy music. So we'll play another clip at the end of the show, which is about him getting clean, basically. Yeah. Very amusing bit where he talks about how he became an expert on toilets because he knew which one's <laughs> locked in any given restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, 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 have, we hatched this idea of a kind of green book for, for, for heroin addicts. <laughs> uh, but you, you, can, you can hear that feel pleasure at the end. Yeah. Um, moving on to what is new in the library. Everything kind of like links up here. From 1956, this was sent to me by Nick Jones, who was Max Jones's son. Max Jones being the main jazz writer on the Melody Maker right through the 50s and 60s and into the 70s. Mm-hmm. And it's an interview with Alexis Corner, presented in Alexis Corner's own words about Skiffle. And he's been typically British blues kind of guy, really purist, which is what we kind of tend to do. He says, Skiffle is basically an instrumental, not a vocal music. And furthermore, it is private music. To produce skiffle sessions at regular interval spots at jazz clubs and worse still, to produce these same sessions at concerts. It's complete nonsense. On both these scores, British skiffle, as I think had better be known, is so far out of line that it bears but a superficial resemblance to the music which inspired it. Mm. Now, of course, this is a time when Lonnie Donegan was having big hit records and British skiffle, as he calls it, leads directly onto the Beatles. Mm. Meanwhile, Alexis is, by 1961, Charlie Watts is playing in his band. Mick Jagger probably is his very first stage He's the first with time Alexis Mick Scott. sang oh. probably would have yeah. been 61. Uh, both Keith Richards and Brian Jones were on stage at various moments mm. with his band. Alexis Corner is the father of British blues and therefore of... Mm. The father of one chunk of rock. You and have roll. to play. I've heard something about this before. You have to play for me what skiffle is because I've heard people talking It's a sort of British folk version of, of like rockabilly. Well, no, well, it's, this, 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 this is the thing. It, real skiffle was stuff that came out of South Side Chicago and some extent Mississippi. And skiffles are actually parties, was another name for parties. And it was basically. Stuff you'd play in your living room to a bunch of friends. Mm. Some which is recorded. But the English version took that, sped it up, which is why it sounds closer to yeah. rockabilly. Yeah. And it's acoustic guitars, washboards, and a washboard. scraping a washboard. <laughs> Always um, got to have a washboard. <laughs> Interesting, our colleague Martin Colley, who's a co-founder of Rock's Back Pages, Pages. Pages. this article has a PS by his uncle, Ken Collier, who's a very purist New Orleans jazz musician in England. And his father, Bill, played washboard in the intermission act that Alexis talks about as the start of British Skiffle and named it. Mm. The promoter said... What are we going to call the intermission act? And Bill said, oh, let's call it Ken Collier's Skittlers. And and that's how it got named. So that's a connection with with, with us guys. And without this, probably no Rolling Stones. Probably no Rolling Stones. You know, in a way. This is the the absolute kind of roots of the thing. Yeah, right, right. So that's pretty interesting. Skipping forward to 70, Mick Farron interviewed by Richard Williams. He's one of our writers. He was a major figure in the underground press, International Times and so on, in in, in the mid-late 60s. I first saw him playing with a band called The Deviants at a free concert in the park in 1969. This is the first proper gig I ever went to. And I was very impressed because uh, Hull's Angel's chick 
dance topless on the stage. I, and I, was, I was 13. He was sold to rock and roll. I, 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 yeah, I, 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 I was 13. Um, <laughs> and he's spouting the usual sort of his version of John Sinclair's White Panther rubbish. We're talking about a revolution, which is the ability to get stoned and laid without anybody bothering too much. <laughs> would uh, that be televised? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, these days, yes, it probably would. Um, <laughs> um, Reality televised. Right. Okay, so skipping through 72, Roy Carr interviewing Sly Stone. Uh, 72, Riot's just come out. He's probably fresh, comes out in the next year, I think. Fresh came out in 73. Yeah, that'd be right. And it's a struggle, because Sly was a struggle by this point. His, you know, his cocaine had become his major priority in life. And, and he talks about, like, not turning up to a gig. He'd been booked to play a festival in, in classic Sly Stone. Didn't tell this is when he came over, I think, to play White City. Is it in it, England? It, it is. This is so no, no, no. This oh, is, this, the this, interview's this, in, in yeah. America. And he says, well, I guess it was like this. If I didn't come to England whenever it was, it was because I was somewhere else at the time. I mean, that's... <laughs> that's... <laughs> Um, he says, I personally, deep feel, shit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I personally feel there's a right, there's a right gun and was a very truthful album, made and then released at a very truthful moment in time. Did you ever see Sly and the Family Stone back in the day? No. Were you too young? Only, only, on, te- right. only on television. When you were born, you would, would have been like 11 when There's a Riot going yeah. on came out. Yeah, okay. No. So, uh, you're even younger than us, and we're really young. <laughs> <laughs> I, I imagine you loved Sly and I Stone. loved Sly yeah. Stone. Yeah. Loved him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, us, us too. I remember I was at school, again, when Stand came out, I was, what, 70? I was at school, and there was this guy there who was, among other things, one of the school musicians, his drummer. He used to bully me, he's really nasty to me. But every time he went to a party, he'd put on stand, and I would just my hair would stand up on the back of my neck. Mm. I mean, mm. I, I, I just love that. I mean, Sly and the Family Stone, I mean, I suppose the obvious point is that Sly was the first guy who really brought like rock and roll elements into R&B slash soul music and and I imagine that must have been you couldn't have like not noticed that Mm. and and been influenced by that given the music you've made no question about it you know what I just had a flash of watching television when he got married yes yeah on on stage on Madison Square Garden Seventy yeah, 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 yeah. It was part of the act. I remember that. Just, we're yeah. going to chuck in a marriage. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least he turned up. He did. Yeah. Yeah. Right. He turned up for his own wedding. Couple years later, La Belle, who at that point had just really broken through, Nightbirds has become this really big hit record, which again I'm sure we all loved. I loved oh, yes. at the time. Um, and they're talking about the, uh, the, the, the all-female group managed by a woman, Vicky Wickham, yeah, um, <laughs> the great, Ricky uh, and who's also business manager, is also a woman, and Nona Hendricks screwing her cute little face to look tough. But there are still some doors we're going to kick them down. Like the business promotion and selling records. Those guys don't particularly care to deal with a female direct unless you're the prize at the end of the party. You know what I mean? Mm. They're looking for the Mr. to back up a Mrs. There is no Mr. Wow. Mm. 74. You wow. Must Strong de- words. You must have had dealings with Nona Hendricks. She had been around Material. your scene. Material, yes. Yes, yes we, we did do that record together. But I came here with Nona Hendricks. Did you? Oh. Sure did. 
fantastic. We I, haven't done I came here and did properly. some dates with Nona. We haven't done our research properly. It's like a bit of a disgrace. We are a disgrace. In fact, we have to just stop now. I was a huge fan of hers. I was a huge fan of LaBelle's. I'm still a fan of Patty LaBelle's. She's done so yeah. many different records over such a long time, yeah. going back to the Bluebells days right yes. up to kind of recently. I just saw Nona. I saw her, I think, maybe a year ago here. Yeah. Here, yeah. I was walking up the street and ran into her. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, if you run into people in interesting ne- places. The next, next time you see her, send her off yeah, on. We love her. We love her. Busting out. That's the one I remember. But it's singing, yeah. singing with material. Busting oh, yes. out. Fantastic. <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, Nineteen seventy-six. Rod Stewart interviewed by Tony Stewart. And this is hilarious. This is no relation. Re- no relation. Rod, uh, the faces had just broken up. Mm. The old pal Ron was oh, yes. already starting to play with the Stones oh, at that yes. point. He knows he's kind of losing credibility. That everyone's starting mocking him because it was all yeah. about all his clothes and his lifestyle and, and British excellent. And oh. it hilariously <laughs> ends. But he just talks about the faces with some truth here the looseness that the faces were known for just became too loose it was silly boy night and you know mm. there was a lot of truth in that but at the end Brit is in on the interview and she starts kind of throwing her tuppence worth in oh, and he goes shut up Brit why don't you shut up let the men get on with the interview <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the counterpoint to what Nona just said right, right, yeah, right. Right. that's the flip uh, oh side um so anyway, so moving on to 79. And the specials, Madness and the Selector, playing the Electric Born in London, reviewed by Giovanni Dodomo for Sounds. He says, it was Madness, I think, who had a song called Too Hot in their set, and a truer word was never skanged to. It was Helen there, I tell you, made the black hole of Calcutta look like a fox's glacier mint. Wet walls, wet crotch. Well, there wasn't a dry anything in the house. <laughs> in five minutes, I had a truly tropical waste, and the rest of me wasted no time in following suit. You don't take notes in this kind of situation. You smile and bounce up and down and hope and pray your feet don't drown in the saline torrent pouring down that away. I'd like to say I spent some time looking for someone to give my woolly the kiss of life. Oh, but, please. But it, was, but it was too hot for that. I mean, leave my... Leave my <laughs> I, 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 I'm going to need a couple of minutes to recover. <laughs> I think Bernard the same. I, I know. I, I know I, 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 I'm a little too graphic oh, yeah. for, yeah, yeah. for midday. Midday. <laughs> um, I, I mean, leaving that last fairly terrible oh. sentence aside, it's, it's great because this is a very early two-tone, sort of collective two-tone bill. I don't know how much you know about the Tito bands and specials. You must have heard the specials, specials, of course. Yeah. 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 And for a brief period, this is really important stuff. It was blacks and whites playing together, partying Mm -hmm, together, mm -hmm. at a time when the skinheads were starting to rule the punk scene and all of that sort of stuff. And some really decent music came out of it. I mean, next piece, well, very briefly, it's Crass are Crass, as the headline, David McCullough. Crass were an anarcho-punk band in the end of the 70s, early 80s, who sort of lived in a commune in Epping Forest and and everything involves a circle with the A scrawled in the middle. And he just really tears into pieces. He says, this bogus underground is pathetic, a kind of sandpit for latent punks to mess about in and pretend they're different and active. Whereas the truth of the matter is they haven't the guts or the energy to do something that's original or startling or new or real. Doubtless the crass phenomenon will say I'm just another dick in the wall out to get them. But that's just one more myth they can merrily bang their heads against. 
I think I'll skip the William Burroughs interview, even though I do like his quote of, I always carried weapons when I was out. I had tear gas, blackjacks and a heavy cane, that sort of thing. Excessive? Not at all. Moving on to the very last thing is the marvellous Barbara Ellen having the most miserable time at Glastonbury in 1998. The headline is, I'm offered cocaine, I'm offered ecstasy, but what I really want is a lethal injection. <laughs> and she says, while Glastonbury is roundly criticised for being too commercial these days, Woodstock with a credit card, this does not seem to have translated through to the latrines. It comes to something when you need third world inoculations just to visit the toilet. And uh, it, 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 it's very amusing. It's, so you it's, did Glastonbury with, yeah. with with the yeah, but you were in, you were the posh backstage latrines. Yes. yes. <laughs> Ooh, I understand what he means. I remember being there it was really hot, and I remember walking out because I wanted to see it. I'd never mm. been there before. Mm. And once we got past the backstage wall, mm. you got hit with the <gasps> smell of people. It was. <laughs> Never again. I'm Never not, again, though. So, you know, I, I, I've, <laughs> I, I generally avoided the festival phenomenon because I, I like my creature comforts, you know, bed <laughs> sleep and all that. But I did a couple of years, I did festival because my niece was playing one of the sort of side stages. And the first one was kind of okay, the sun shone a lot. The second one was like the third battle of Ypres, you know. And that wasn't, that wasn't a German gun you heard, but the kick drum sound checking at 10 in the morning, and the mud was that deep. And we just ended up staying up on the highest hill away from the pit as possible and just didn't venture down. I ventured down to see Grace Jones, who was fabulous, and the P-Funk All-Stars, who were pretty damn good for a bunch of old guys playing <laughs> funk. You know. But other than that, we just... Hid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. So that's 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 the Thanks, highlights. Mark. That's terrific. I'll just mention two or things that caught my eye on the menu, as it were. Since we are a site about music writing, journalism, and so forth, I noticed the Dave Marsh piece on Lisa Robinson from mm. 1978 mm-hmm. was interesting. The Doyen of New York music journalism, the Queen of the Scene. So that's interesting. There's a piece about the Eagles of Death Metal, Josh Homme's band, spin-off of Queens of the Stone Age mm-hmm. and Good Value and Funny. And also a piece by one of our writers, Michael Simmons, who I must confess, I hadn't realised he was part of Kinky Friedman's group. The Texas Jew Boys. The Texas Jew Boys, <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's really what they were called. And the piece is actually called I Was a Texas Jew Boy. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> and have you ever heard of Kinky Friedman? Yes. You know Kinky... Okay, so what a character. I mean, there, there aren't many Jewish country singers. Uh, I'd say right Texas. now, I'd say yeah. right now, there are none. <laughs> the, right now, now, yeah. But Kinky Friedman was, was a fascinating and very, very funny songwriter. And, and Michael Simmons was in the group, along with Larry Campbell, who played with Dylan and so forth. So it's a little memoir. Yeah, yeah. No way to make them Jews like Jesus anymore. They don't turn the other cheek away. That is pretty much it. There's a ton of stuff. There's well over 50 new pieces on Rock's Back Pages every week. So have a look and see if anything takes your fancy. As we've already said, the the audio interview is with the late, great Dr. John. And then there's pieces about our guest today, Bernard Fowler, who, you know, we're so grateful to you for coming. Uh, Mark. <laughs> it's been a blast. It's fabulous. Really that that so was much. such fun. That Thank was just, so just brilliant. And I hope like, it was worth getting up. Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> I'll do it again. Oh, bless you, you know, you. you have this nerve thing of are you actually going to like the record that the 
guy you're talking to is playing. <laughs> and we're going to have to pretend to like it. We didn't have to pretend to no, like this at goodness. all. No. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, Barney put it on in the office yesterday and we all went, what is this? Yeah. You know, it was just. And I kind great. of thinking that, you know, I mean, yeah, well, we know that Keith has risked, but I mean, I think Mick would. Would love this if he hasn't heard well, it. I just gave it. I gave it to him at rehearsal the yeah. day before yesterday. So hopefully we'll he's see. We'll yeah. see. Anyways, yeah, thank yeah. you so much for coming in. Yeah. Thank it's, you. It's Mark. just been brilliant. And thank you, Barney. And good thank luck you. on tour. Have a good flight to yeah. Chicago, and I hope everything will do. Your we'll summer hope is to great. See you guys soon. Well, indeed. And you. we're going to play out with Mac Rebernack, Doctor John, talking about getting clean and uh, about finding toilets that he could shoot up in. Thank you, Mark. On that happy note. Bye. See you you next week. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Such a night. You're such a night. And we have talked pretty openly about your addiction and recovery. Uh, Are there some people who you would acknowledge in helping you out in this process, or was it really one man battle? Oh, I got a lot of. I got a lot of friends that helped me. I mean, people like Doc Bomas, man, he, he used to know I was... He hated me slipping into his bathroom to shoot dope. And he would always tell me, I thought you were going to never come out alive. No, out, but alive. And I couldn't understand it. I was making this guy crippled. He can't even turn around and know what I'm doing good. And I started getting plexus, so... He had a lot to do with it. You know, I got some of my kids, man. You know, they fucking... I drove these kids crazy. They had the same thing. Jesus, we thought you were never going to come out the bathroom. I mean, I started to write a book about a Dauphine's view of bathrooms. Uh, it's like, you know, nobody in this world knows bathrooms like junkies. You know, like what restaurants you can lock the door, which gas stations you can lock that you have the enclosures, nobody could see with that whole I don't think it's interesting reading that. That was Dr. John in conversation with Andy Schwartz in 1994, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Bernard Fowler. His new album, Inside Out, is out now. Find all the details of that and his previous album, The Borer, on his website at bernardfowler.com. The hosts are Bonnie Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and the producer was Jasper Murison Bowie. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. Yeah.